Thank you, Jenny. Well, I had to laugh when I saw that the story that Margot just read to us was the Old Testament text chosen by the lectionary for this Sunday, the Sunday right in the middle of July, which is right in the middle of the summer. What better text for this Sunday than a text about siblings fighting? Can I get an amen? Amen. Yes. Though we all like the snowman Olaf in the movie Frozen, we love summer. And we love the gift of spending more time with the ones we love. Come the middle of July, even the most functional families appear a bit dysfunctional. Now, of course, thank God for the story today, this biblical family who put to rest all our dysfunctional families. We look like nothing compared to them. If I were naming my sermon this morning rather than a few days ago when I came up with the title in the bulletin, I'd probably call it the dysfunctional family of God because that's what this is. Now, at first I thought my sermon would just focus on Esau. After all, he always gets the bad rap in this story. He sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. Who does that? Well, if we're being honest, we all sort of do that, don't we? And that, that's where the title in the sermon, came, the title in the bulletin came from, for sale by owner. And if I would have followed that original theme, I would have told you about one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons, where Homer Simpson sells his soul, not for a bowl of soup, but for a donut. And I would have compared it to how we do the same in all of our lives. I'm thinking of lifelong relationships, sacrificed for momentary pleasure. Or how we as a nation pursue empty promises and policies from politicians. We focus on what makes life easy now, not thinking about the inheritance we leave for our children. Or how we as a church may pursue momentary fixes in ministry, avoiding controversial issues and hard decisions, pleasing people in the pews now while we give up our birthright as an outpost of the kingdom of God. Don't be like Esau, that was going to be the sermon. And it would have been a good sermon, I'm sure. But as I dug deeper into the text, I began to feel sorry for the guy. I mean, we think being the father's favorite, that that's a good thing. But think of the burden Esau must have bore. And after all, do you blame Esau really for despising a birthright from a dysfunctional family like his? Now, today we enter the story of his family right in the middle, so let me back up the story a bit and remind you what you may have learned at VBSs in the past. When we first meet Abraham and Sarah, of course, then they're called Abram and Sarai. From the very first moment, we find dysfunction. After giving up on their chance to have children, they are promised in their old age by God that they will be parents of a new nation. But children still don't come. Year after year goes by. And Abraham decides to take matters into his own hands and impregnates his female servant, Hagar. Sounds like a good idea at the time. Ishmael is born and Abraham thinks that the promise has been given. But when the presence of Hagar and Ishmael become too much for Sarah to bear, what does Abraham do? He kicks them out of the camp, out of the family, leaving his son and his servant to fend for themselves in the wilderness. 
Well, eventually, as you remember, a child is born. The child is named Isaac, who we read about today. He is the child of promise. And just when they're ready to live happily ever after in the promises of God, Abraham gets in his head that God wants him to sacrifice, now read, kill his only son. We are told that God intervenes at the last moment, saves Isaac, but I'm sure the damage is already done to the young boy. How do you recover from such an experience as that? Your father raising a knife to kill you because he believes it is God's will. That's going to mess with you. Now, we're not told much about Rebecca's family, and that's part of the problem, isn't it? She was from a time and a culture that was not very friendly to women, to put it lightly. The fact that we even know her name at all is a triumph of history because too often the names of women are left out. We're told in list all the sons of Abraham, but what of his daughters? When it's time for Isaac to get married, things are handled by the father, the patriarch Abraham, who sends out his servant to go find a suitable wife for his son. And that's what the servant does. He finds Rebekah and negotiates this this economic deal with her father, to which Rachel, or which Rebecca agrees, though we can only imagine what would have happened to her if she didn't agree. She's then presented to Isaac to be his wife, and we're told that Isaac sees her and he loves her, but we're never told how Rebecca feels about the situation. And after all this, all this dysfunction in their past, we're told that Isaac and Rebecca like Isaac's parents, are faced with infertility. Isaac is 40 when he marries, but if you caught it in the text, he's 60 when his child, when his children, his twins are born. That's 20 years of infertility. And we're told he prays that she has a child and she has twins, but we wonder how long he prayed, how many times the prayers are not answered in those long 20 years. When the prayer is finally answered, they have twins. Wow, not quite what they were praying for. And the twins begin to war inside of Rebecca's womb. The pain is so much that Rebecca, who had long prayed for this, wishes she were dead than to endure this pregnancy. Perhaps we should have a little sympathy for this family today and a little relief. Relief that maybe we're not as bad of parents as we thought we were. Maybe our family isn't as dysfunctional as we thought. Isaac and Rebecca, before this text ever begins, have so much to bear. And this doesn't excuse their behavior, but it does explain it. As happens to many of us, the ghosts of our past have a way of influencing the way we treat people in the present. I mean, who can forget that day when your child says back to you the same things that you have said to them. You can see yourself in the mirror of their actions and you don't look very good. We sometimes play out the scripts we've been given, treating our spouses, our children, our siblings, the way we saw it modeled in our own families. And this is fine when things are good, but when the family system is dysfunctional like Isaac's, it's hard not to repeat that dysfunction and even to magnify it. Perhaps Esau acts the way he acts because he can no longer live under this burden of being the favorite twin. Isaac favors Esau, we're told, because Isaac, well, he has a taste for game, and Esau's a good hunter. He likes likes Esau 
Because Esau can give him good food. Well, isn't that swell? And what happens when the game is not as good or when Esau can't hunt or doesn't want to hunt like he used to? Maybe that's why Esau's so famished in the text while hunting, because he has no time to care for himself, constantly under the burden of pleasing his father. Who would not despise such a birthright from a father like that? Of course, Jacob, who's often the hero, he's no perfect child either. What brother would take advantage of his own twin in the moment of his deepest need, withholding a bowl of soup until he gives him basically his entire life? Rebecca, we're told, likes Jacob best, but we don't know why, but we can imagine maybe she feels sorry for the guy. Since dad favors his brother, from the moment Jacob is born, he is a supplanter, we are told. That's what Jacob means when we name our children Jacob. That's what we're calling them, supplanters. He came out of the womb grabbing his brother's heel. He's always going to be the underdog. And if he's going to get anything in life, it's going to be because he grabs for it, because he connives and tricks his way up the ladder. If he's going to make it in life, it's going to be by clawing his way to the top. And if people are stepped on in the process, well, that's just collateral damage. Being family is hard. 4,000 years ago, it was hard. In the middle of summer break, it's hard. But where is the good news in that? So we're not the most dysfunctional family on the block. Big deal. We could have stayed at home and watched reruns of Super Nanny or the Kardashians and gotten that message. We're messed up. We get that. We know it all too well. Is that why this story is here? To remind us that we may not be the most messed up ones of all. For the ancient Israelites, this story helped explain where they came from and why they were always at war with the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Oh, that's why we've been fighting since we were born. Sometimes it helps to know that your dysfunction can be explained. You're messed up for a reason. But we need more than just reasons and explanations. What do we do with these characters? We praise them for their faith, yet it's hard to see a praiseworthy one in the bunch. Yet these are the stories we tell our children in Sunday school. Be like these people, we say. And what are we thinking? Are these the characters we want our children to exemplify? They're all messed up. Everyone in the story. But, but there is one more character. There's one more figure in our story today, barely mentioned, but God is all throughout this story. Now, this isn't just any messed up family. This is God's messed up family. God chose them, we are told, for what reasons we don't know, but God chose them, every one of them, flaws and all. When God first covenants with Abraham, God was making Abraham, God's kin, God's people, God's family. This story is told not simply to explain where Israel as a people came, where Israel comes from, though it explains that, nor does it simply help us feel better about our own dysfunction, though it certainly does. But this story is good news because in the midst of this mess, right in the middle is God. God doesn't flee this family looking for better candidates to birth salvation into the world. 
God works in the midst of the mess, with the mess. God chooses the weak over the strong. God chooses the most messed up ones who don't have it all figured out to be the ones to bring salvation to the world. God sees a challenge, God accepts the challenge, and God sticks with it no matter what until something beautiful emerges. And because of God's choice, the dysfunctional family of Abraham and Sarah become a great nation and a blessed people. And through this family, we're told, is where Jesus himself is born. This is Jesus' ancestors. This is his dysfunctional family. We may sell our souls for a donut or for a bowl of soup. We may claw our way to the top, stepping on everyone around us in the process in order to be successful We may repeat and repeat and repeat patterns of dysfunction handed to us from our families before us. We may give into the worst inclinations of our behaviors. We may mess up time and time again. We may not look the part, but we are still the dysfunctional, beautiful family of God. And there are no limits to what God can do through our dysfunction. Through the grace of God, the pattern is broken. Our family story is never over. There's always hope. There's always new life. That's why Paul, after talking about this family in Romans, in chapter 8, can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no shame from where you come from, no judgment, no matter who you are or what you've done, or where you've come from, no matter how messed up that family may be, there is no condemnation. None. You are God's daughter. You are God's son. And God loves you. God chose you. God chose Abraham and Sarah. God chose Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. And God chose you in the midst of a mess. And through the mess, God changes our world. And so Christ invites his family All of us, even the ones we may not like, even the ones who feel we are unworthy, too messed up, God invites us to come to the table, the family table, just as we are, dirt on our shoes, hands unwashed, to come to the table and at this table learn again what it means to be family, to love in spite of our flaws, to build up not to supplant, to bless, not to curse, to treat everyone as equals, for that is what we are to God. For at this table we receive the unconditional love of God. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, we become again the beautiful family of God. Let us come to the table, and as we prepare, let us sing our hymn, Eat This Bread.